0: And if you could keep your Bible open at Ephesians chapter 6, which can be found on page 1167, 1167, Uh, that is our preaching text for today. In addition, if a sermon outline would help you to follow what I am saying, you can find one in the center of your white service bulletin, in your white service bulletin right in the center. Well, brothers and sisters, let us pray and ask God for his help before we look at his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, grant by your grace that we would hear and understand your word, and that by your spirit you would be molding our hearts so we might receive what you have to say with faith. We ask that you would be convicting us of our sin and pointing us to Christ, that we might find our identity in him. I pray for me that you'd help me to preach faithfully and in the power of your spirit, and to bring glory to you as your word is proclaimed. May ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our passage today begins with an assumption. It is a very big assumption. Paul does not explain it to his readers. He does not attempt to justify it. He simply assumes that his readers already know it, already understand it, and already accept it. And that assumption is this, the church, you, me, all of us, we are at war. The church is at war. And we know this because Paul tells us in verse 11, verse 11, to put on the armor of God. Now we know that armor is of no use for swimming. It is no use for sightseeing, and it is certainly of no use for sunbathing. Armor has one use and one use alone. War. And so before we proceed any further into this text, we need to accept and believe the assumption behind and under the text. Church, we are at war. You, therefore, are at war. This is not a visible war. It is not a physical war. It is a spiritual war. And because it is these things, that poses a danger for us right at the beginning. Because this is a spiritual war, because it is an invisible war, because it does not involve bombs and bullets or machetes and machine guns, we may think, or we may be deluded to think, that this is somehow not a real war. But that would be a grave mistake. For the Bible insists that there is more to creation than the material and the physical. There is more to reality than what we see. It is why we confess in the Nicene Creed that God is the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. There exists, as well as this world, an invisible, immaterial, spiritual realm that interacts with this world and is occupied by personal agents. The Bible refers to these agents as angels and demons. And although it does not tell us much about demonic power, it does tell us enough. The Bible tells us that demons are active in this world, that they have rebelled against God and that they disobey him. And more than that, that they incite human beings to disobey God too. In Genesis, Satan incited Adam and Eve to disobedience. In Chronicles, he incited David to disobedience. And in Ephesians, Paul says that he incites all of humanity to disobedience. And in chapter 2, verse 2, it is told to us, Satan is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Brothers and sisters we must acknowledge first that that used to include us. We were once subject to Satan's control. We were once allied with him and at war with God. We were once all following him and willingly. And thus we all, like the rest of this world, were once children of God's wrath. But Paul also tells us that God being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our disobedience, God has made us alive together with Christ. In Christ, God has fought against the bounds of darkness. In Christ, he has broken the shackles of our disobedience. In Christ, he has rescued us from the power of Satan, and he has raised us to new life in Christ. And in doing all of those things, God has made us, with Christ, enemies of Satan. We are now, along with all of God's people throughout every age, in enmity with Satan and his agents. And we know that that enmity exists because God himself has established it. God has put enmity between his children, his beloved children, and the children of Satan, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Such that just as Cain was against Abel and Pharaoh against Israel and Haman against the Jews, the church, all of us here, are caught in that same ancient conflict. A conflict that at its heart is not political, but it is spiritual. Because our allegiance to Christ is enmity with evil. Our union with Christ is opposition to Satan, and our love for Christ is loathsome to all of Satan's children. Church, we are at war with evil. And if you are not already, you must wake up to that fact. You must realize that there is a war going on and that you are expected to fight. This is a necessary part of the Christian life. Struggle against evil is a necessary part of the Christian life, when you struggle to be godly, when you persevere, when you proclaim Christ, even when it will get you into trouble, when you are hated by your colleagues because you make a stand for godliness of life, that is a war that is not optional. That is part and parcel of following Christ. If you bear the name of Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you are baptized into the name of Christ, then you are also a soldier of Christ. It's not an option. So that is my first point. It is the assumption that underlies the entire passage that we are in a spiritual war. However, given that assumption, given that we are all at war, then there is an important question which we must ask. And that question, I think, is this. In this war, which we are all called to fight, how are we supposed to fight? What is the means? What is the manner? How are we supposed to do it? And I think Paul answers that question with three basic points in this chapter. They're on your outline. One, we must know our enemy. Two, we must know our objective. And three, we must know how we should be equipped to fight. In other words, who are we fighting? What is our aim in fighting, and what do we need in order to fight? We're going to go through those in one, two, three. So point one, who is it that we are fighting? Well, we have seen in verse 12, as we have already read, but look down again, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This means, first, that the church needs not, and it should not, take up physical arms to advance its aims. Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world, and he explicitly forbade his followers to take up arms in that cause, that is, to misunderstand his kingdom. And political intrigues don't work better either. No, our fight is neither a crusade nor a jihad, because we fight spiritual opponents. These are identified again in verse 12. We are not fighting flesh and blood. Verse 12, who are we fighting? We are fighting the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the powers which are hostile to God, which seek to undermine his rule and to lead people astray, and which operate in our culture. You see, the corruptions of human society, the love of money, illicit sex, drunkenness, addiction, impurity, covetousness, abuse of power, and all false religion, these are not merely human, but they have a spiritual a demonic dimension, and we must fight against them in our private lives and in public. But I think for Paul, the most important thing he wants us to know about these opponents, about these enemies, about these powers, is that these powers, dreadful and dangerous as they are, have been defeated. God, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, has fought and has beaten these powers and authorities. And Paul has told us this right at the start in chapter 1. In fact, if you just flick back two pages in your Bible, as I am doing, you will see Ephesians 1, verse 20. We read that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all these rulers and powers, and authorities, and dominions." That is, that the, the resurrection of Christ is the declaration of God's triumph over these forces. He has shown the immeasurable strength of his might by raising Christ from the grave, ascending him on high, and seating him above all of these rulers, powers, and authorities, and proclaiming to all of the universe that he has won in Christ, that these stand defeated. And therefore, for us, because we are united to Christ, Paul tells us, because the church are those who are in Christ, he is also able to say in Ephesians 2 that God has also raised us and seated us in the heavenly places together with Christ. That is, for those who are in Christ, the war, in a sense, is already won. We share in the victory of Christ because we share in his exalted position. We are are in Christ. And that means that our aim in this fight, our objective in this war, is not to conquer evil. That's not what Paul says. Our mission is is not to finish what God has started and has left us to continue. That's not what Paul says either. No. I think Paul is very clear. Our aim, he repeats it four times in this passage if you notice, our aim is to stand firm. Have a look at verse 13. He says it there, three times. One of those times is withstand, but it is the same basic word. Verse 13, look at that. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. In other words, Because the victory is already won, because God in Christ has beaten these powers, our job as those who are in Christ is to stand firm in Christ. We only fight in and through the one who has already fought and the one who has already won, Jesus Christ our Lord. don't fight by ourselves. That is to, to misunderstand this passage, that we need to give to ourselves greater armor and fight with a greater intensity and try harder. No. We are to be strong in Christ, to stand in his strength. And I think that's exactly what Paul means at the beginning of this passage. If we look at verse 10, In verse 10, Paul says, he begins, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, throughout Ephesians, Paul uses the title of Lord consistently for Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, to be strong in the Lord means to find our strength in Jesus. But I also think this because, actually, Paul has already used the phrase, the strength of God's might, before in Ephesians. Uh, he did so in chapter 1, verse 19. And so we might ask, well, Paul, what do you mean by the strength of God's might? What does it mean in the strength of God's might? Well, Paul actually tells us in the very next verse, in Ephesians 1.20, what is the strength of God's might it is the might that God, verse 20, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, power, authority, and dominion. That is the strength of his might. It is the immeasurable strength that he worked in the resurrection, and it is the same strength that he has worked in us in raising us, and it is that strength that he calls you to stand fast in. Brothers and sisters, to be strong in the Lord, to put on the armor of God, is nothing less than to put on the risen, ascended, and glorified Jesus. You want it very simply. My point is this. If you have lost attention, you have drifted away, this is where you need to come back. This is the main point. In the battle which we are all called to fight, Christ is what we need, and he is all that we need. Christ is what we need, and he is all that we need. That is, I don't think Paul here is finishing his letter with some grand rhetorical flourish that that is great metaphor, but but separate from the rest of his letter. I think Paul is finishing exactly where he began. Remember in chapter 1, Paul told us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ He has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, and forgiven us, and he has done all of those things in Christ. In Christ, he has raised you to new life. In Christ, he has seated you in heaven with him. In Christ, he has guaranteed you the hope of glory, and nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, whether powers in heaven or on earth. Stand, therefore, in Christ. We do not start the Christian life in self-reliance, but by the grace of God in Christ. And so we do not continue or end it in self-reliance. No, every day, as we struggle, as we press on through trials, what we need is not inner strength, it's very tempting to believe that that we can do it but what we need is his strength what we need is christ and christ is all we need and finally i think this helps us to understand the armor of god properly Because here Paul is telling us, as he did in chapter 4, that to put on the armor of God is to put on Christ. And what we should notice is that Jesus is the one who exhibits all of the attributes of this armor, and he does so in perfection. Christ is the very truth of God. Wrap yourselves in Christ. Gird yourselves in Christ. Christ is the one who is clothed in righteousness, perfect righteousness, and he is the one who clothes us with righteousness. Christ is the one who came as the eternal word of God, that living and active two-edged sword that Hebrews tells us about, that pierces the soul and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Christ is the one who has come to us in Malaysia to preach a gospel of peace. We were told in chapter 2, in verse 17, that, that Christ came and preached peace to us who are far off and peace to those who are near. We proclaim peace with shoes of readiness because we are in the one who has preached peace to us. So when we take up the shield of faith, We are expressing confidence in his defense. The Lord is our refuge and our strength. The Lord is our shield. We shall not be afraid. Because Jesus was pierced, the flaming darts of Satan shall not pierce us. That is what faith tells us. Yes, Satan may attack us and he will attack us. Be sure of that. But he cannot bring us to condemnation. Those darts were spent and extinguished at the cross of Christ. Hallelujah. And so with such a magnificent, with such a a glorious gospel, with with the truth that we are clothed with the majesty of the resplendent Christ, may we pray with the Apostle Paul that our mouths may be opened to proclaim boldly, to have courage, to tell people, all people, the mystery of this gospel, a gospel of peace, to a world that will hate us, that will fight us every inch for believing it and for proclaiming it. Brothers and sisters, together we are at war. A spiritual war against an enemy who is deceitful, dangerous, and yet defeated. He carries around his chains wherever he goes. And we are called, as those who are in Christ, to stand, to be strong in the strength of his might. For in this fight, the fight of our lives, the fight of your life, Jesus is what we need, and he is all that we need. Let us pray. Let us pray along with the Apostle Paul. Father, we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all your people what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be clothed with all the fullness of God. And so to you, Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to your power at work within us, that immeasurably great power that you exercise in the resurrection of Christ, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.